Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to a beautiful podcast. I'm your host, Spring Developer Advocate Josh Long, and this show is all about the real heroes behind Spring and its ecosystem. Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to another episode of a beautiful podcast. How are you this fine 24th of August, the last day of Spring One? Uh, it's just been an amazing, amazing uh, week, I tell you. It's what a party! <laughs> what a what a party! Uh, it has been. I mean, it feels like a million days have gone by since I got here in Vegas. Uh, it, Vegas is dizzying. It's fun. It's loud. It's smoky. It's disorienting. Um, but you know, at least the strip is right. But but if you meet your friends here. And uh, you can converge into one roof to uh, talk about spring. I mean, it's just an amazing experience. Really something else entirely. It's just phenomenal. So uh, it's just been a great, great week. I cannot tell you how good it's been. It's been uh, fantastic. Um, we announced, you know, we showed a bunch of th- a bunch of new things. Um, uh, I've, I've been telling people to go check out springone.io, History of Spring. Um with dashes, you know, history dash of dash spring. Uh, do it while you can. I'm not sure how long it'll be there. Hopefully forever, but who knows? Uh, we're celebrating 20 years of spring this year, and uh, we announced new courses for Spring Academy, right? Spring Academy. Uh, these are free. Go ahead and check them out. We announced. Um, um, wow, what a, what a week! Uh, we new a new project called Spring AI. Go check that out. Um, spring.io forward slash sorry github.com spring dash projects dash experimental forward slash spring dash AI um, it is a interface to large language models like uh, uh, like you know um, open AI's uh, uh, system and um, uh, Azure uh, open AI as well and uh, you know we'll, if we, as soon as we can get integration with other uh, uh, LLMs will use that as well. Um, yeah, just, I mean, there's a really great project. Uh, what else? Gosh, what else is there? I mean, just obviously we talked about the new late and great stuff in Spring Boot uh, 3.2, including the new Project Loom support, the ever better uh, GraalVM support, the new JDBC client, right? Uh, kind of like a Fluid DSL alternative to the JDBC template, the uh, REST client, which is a Fluid DSL alternative to the REST template, um, and just uh, we introduced a new function as a service component model uh, that looks kind of like a controller, right? For Spring Cloud function, uh, we introduced huge discounts on Azure Spring Apps uh, Enterprise, right? Check that out. We introduced uh, just, I mean. I can't even, I don't even know how to, it's just so much. Way, 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 way too much. Um, yeah, what a week. What a week. Uh, whew, I haven't really had a lot of time to process my notes on this. Um, but it, it, it has been, uh, and it's the first in-person one since 2019. The first time we've all been able to sort of get together and see each other in this way. Um, and we have missed each other, obviously, and so it was just really great to be here. Um, what an experience! What an experience! I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm certain that when you see 
the the content catalog that <laughs> that's out there uh you'll you'll regret not having come but um i think it'll be i i, I reckon it'll be put online all the other ones previously have so why not this one um we celebrated 20 years of of spring framework and, tw and 10 years of spring boot uh the the good doctor the great doctor david sire and i um and Mer spring boot team uh relative newcomer but also legendary uh engineer uh moritz halberter the three of us did a a bit in the keynote kind of celebrating the last 10 years well dave and i focused on the last 10 years of spring boot uh, and then he introduced the new stuff in Spring Boot 3.2 and 3.1, uh, namely the test containers, Docker Compose support. Um, wow. That, that keynote was amazingly good fun, but uh, it, it, we, we actually got back, we actually brought back to life, Dave and I, uh, start.spring.io, the old software for the Spring Initializer 1.0 from about 10 years ago. So if you go to start100.spring.io, <laughs> to prepare for a little trip back in time, you can you can generate a project using Spring Boot 1.0. We uh we, we have start 150.spring.io, which is Spring Boot 1.5. We have start 200.spring.io to get you know Spring Boot 2.0 X generation uh, software, and then of course you just go to start.spring.io for the latest and greatest 3.x uh, generation. Uh, I wrote JavaScript. I'm not proud, but it had to be done. Dirty jobs done dirt cheap. Uh, I wrote JavaScript. I actually wrote a little browser plugin uh, <laughs> uh, for this demo. And it was, I think people liked it. It went off without a, without too many hitches. Uh, and uh, what else? What I mean, wow, it was just a lot of fun. We really had a great time. Oh, we have, uh, the, the other thing was because of this birthday, um, you know, birth year, I guess, uh, because of that sort of recognition and effort, we, um, we went back and looked at all the old keynotes and stuff. We had photos from the last 10 years. So that was a, it was a spring one party reception thing, uh, you know, uh, and they had these videos of the, um, of me and so many others on the last 10 years. And, uh, well, you know, a couple of things are striking. First of all, I, I've lost hair and gained weight. It, it doesn't seem quite fair. The trends are all in the wrong direction and everywhere I'm looking. Um, but, but, uh, but yeah, we were, it's been, it's hard to believe we've 10 years of spring boot and it, it just getting better. You know, the, I saw some number in the keynote. What, what was that? Like, uh, I could be, let me just make sure I'm getting this right. I think it's 50% year over year, right? For five years or something like that. And like growth. I don't know. It just, just, uh, I could be wrong. I don't know. I am, I'm quoting from memory here. Let me see. Um, Yeah, it was a, wow, what a, what a, there it is, 55, 50% uh, growth in use um, for five years in a row, five plus years in a row, year over year growth, uh, which is, a, which is phenomenal, you know, um, and it's just, it was just great, it's just, I, I, I'm, I'm actually sitting here at a loss for words, I can't tell you, I, my brain is spinning, uh, I have a, six o'clock flight you might notice my my voice is basically all but given up the ghost i i'm just here uh uh for another 12 hours all i gotta do is be able to speak for another 12 hours then i can go home and like recover and recuperate because it has been a roller coaster just an absolutely insane roller coaster um and i think part of it is you know you're just constant it's disorienting here it really is I, I, 
it's fun to visit, but wow, I would not like to work on the strip. I, I, uh, I've got like a smoker's cough and I don't smoke. And, uh, you know, you're just, you're just walking around these casinos with all that smoke. Um, and, uh, and of course these things, these casinos are so, so, so very big that, um, they sprawl, you know, they, they just go on forever, ages and ages. And, uh, you can, you can lose track of time if you're not, if you don't open the curtains in your room, you may not even realize it's daylight outside or, uh, or uh, you know, nighttime or whatever. It's just absolutely huge. And I, I've been getting, it's weird. I've been getting my steps in. Uh, I, I've been walking around so much. And it's, it's just, you always bump into somebody you know, somebody wants to take a, or somebody that knows you and maybe wants to take a photo or whatever. And there's all these great conversations. It's just been a thrill. I, I, I feel, you know, very lucky. Um yeah, and by the way, the show was an unparalleled success. Uh, we <clears throat> uh, we had so this year we had Spring One as part of VMware Explorer, so it was like a little sub conference in the main one, and uh, we had our expectations for Spring One, and we very very handily exceeded them. Uh, uh, so thank you to everyone that came. I mean, it was just a one 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 hell of a show, one really really amazing time. Um, there were some other things out there that were worth celebrating. I don't want to, I'm not, obviously spring one was my, my, uh, sun, moon, and stars for the last, uh, week and, and indeed for the last several months, because we've been all working so furiously to better prepare for it. But, um, India, rock on India. India did something that I'll never forget. I, I, I can say I was alive and I saw that, uh, which is that they landed uh, a lunar, vehicle on the south pole of the moon first time in human history that's ever been done um gives me goosebumps just thinking about it you know i mean sometimes it's so easy to get all wrapped up in whatever isolated uh goings-ons you're dealing with but then you remember like we're all on this little pebble hurtling through time together and uh when when we're able to do things like that we're we're we're, we're amazing. We deserve a pat in the back and the Indians, uh, especially, I, I, I wish I could be there in India. I wish I could celebrate with y'all. You know, that was, that sounded like it would have been a good, a good party. That was, ah, congratulations. That is so, so impressive. Really just, what a, what a beautiful thing. What an amazing thing. I, um, sometimes, it's, uh, sometimes people surprise you, you know, they make you, uh, they do something really nice or they do something, really exceptional and uh you know just this is one of those really amazing things in a week full of amazing things this still stood out right that's how uh and i feel right now goosebumps just thinking about it <sighs> you know who loves india besides me i love india i've gone there a million times and i always bring my stretchy pants i always have amazing amazing food and, and i have good friends there and uh, I've, i don't know i've been probably a 10 different cities there i i not everywhere certainly not even close obviously but um, I've gone there a million times, but I, uh, the first few times that I went were back in 2011 or 2012, I think. And, uh, it was with my friend, uh, fellow Java champion, the one, the only, the amazing, the inimitable, the legendary Chris Richardson. Chris is, a, I, I he's just, I mean, he's a softer prophet, you know, he, uh, he, he, uh, was talking about, you know, not, no, he was talking about microservices before we were talking about it. He built a cloud platform uh, before anybody else was building a cloud a platform as a service, no less. He built that, and that would eventually become Cloud Foundry and, and so on. And he built a, a, 
he built um Uh, you know, he uh, he was out there talking about reactive years before everybody else would make the jump to it. Uh, he's got a microservices patterns book that's a, a, in, a enormously popular. I mean, just just an absolutely brilliant uh, human being and, and hysterically funny as well. So we had a great uh, roving conversation and that's this episode that you're going to listen to today. And also we both love and we have fond memories of our uh, <laughs> misadventures in in Bangalore and beyond uh, in other parts of India so many years ago. And whenever one of us is there, we send photos to the other. Hey, remember this place or that or whatever? Yeah. Um, so, my friends, enjoy today's episode. Uh, uh, and know that it comes steeped in, uh, you know, fraternity and, uh, and, and appreciation. Um, I hope you have a great day. Enjoy the episode. We'll see you next week. That was that song gets a little uh, uh, repetitive. It's kind of um, energetic music. <laughs> yeah, very energetic. A little, I mean, I, it's coffee and software, but that wasn't just coffee. There's something else there. Maybe two cups of coffee. Hi, Chris. Good to see you, man. Oh, it's good to see you too. I'm starting to stress about my background. <laughs> Why? Oh. <laughs> it's like really visible behind me. Oh, don't you have the the Mac um, filter effect thing? You can go up to the drop down thing in the top right. Oh, and there's a do a blur. Can I do a blur? Yeah, it's an effect now. It's part of the Mac. You go to the video effect. You know where the where it says "Do not disturb" and the Wi-Fi and all that in your MacBook Pro. The little wow, I didn't know about. Thing. Oh, wait, in the app, there's a blur. Okay, no, no. no. In the map, in the there you go, yeah, it's blurry now. Oh, yeah. Cool, cool. Now I'm hiding all my crap. <laughs> um, I, so uh, I just got back uh, from a, a fair, fairly good trip, and yeah, we're all tired. We're a little jet lagged, you know, because again, right now it's I don't know what's the time time in Tokyo, and six in the morning. So, so I, I confess, had had this meeting been a couple hours earlier. Uh, you would have, my partner would have been asleep in the bed there. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you talk about cleaning up, curating your background, you know, I had to move the body. <laughs> you had to throw her out to the room. Yeah, well, you don't throw. No, no, no. <laughs> she would, th she's stronger than I am. That wouldn't go well at all. No. Um, but I would, I would, I'd, I'd, I'd make a cup of coffee. I like, come on, come on, follow me, you know? I'm yeah. I'm a I'm a whirl with emotions today. First of all, Maui's on fire. That's not good. Uh, uh, second of all, today my kid's going to her college orientation uh, in, uh, in 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 the school she's going to right for university. And wow. uh, so that started just as you and I got on the on the digital horn here today. Wow, that's exciting. Big step. Yeah. Big step. <laughs> Um, you, feel, you feel all grown up now? You know, I should. Yeah, I, I don't know. Do you, feel, do you feel grown up? I don't feel grown up yet. No. Uh, yeah, it's complicated. In some ways, yes. In other ways, no. Yeah. Like, so so people, have, people have taken to that, to that word uh, adulting, right? Like, 
when they recognize they're doing a thing that was uh, uh, otherwise more mature than they would have otherwise been expected or capable of being, you know? Um, yeah. And I, and I kind of relate to that, but, but I guess I'm just secretly not willing to admit that I relate to that. So I've never, I don't, I don't, I've probably tried to affect the word adulting, you know, but, uh, well, you know, it's important to whatever your age to actually have fun and maybe with adult, the word adult just sounds so serious, right? Yeah. That's what my parents were. You know, I feel like, yeah, we should talk about, um, mortgage, our investments, the cow, the kids, and all that sort of adulty stuff as opposed to just, well, actually serious work, interesting technology, but just actually have fun as well. True, which is why you're here, by the way. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, who, who are you? You want to introduce yourself so I don't butcher it? I could just say you're... I, well, it's Apparently, I'm a legendary cloud native. Um, true, very true. Fact. Which actually we could have a whole discussion on on each one of the words in that. <laughs> yes. I, um, I can help with the word the. Yeah. So, yeah, well, I, I'm Chris Richardson. Yeah, I've been building software for a million plus years. Um, notable things I've done, like uh, I wrote the book Pojos in Action quite a long time ago. I created yeah. the original Cloud Foundry. I wrote the book Microservices Patterns. And I basically work with organizations around the world um, to kind of improve their architecture and improve their development processes. Fruitful work because there's always, and I mean always, more of it to be done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, we can, let's do a little, uh, let's do like a, we'll work backwards. Uh, start from the beginning. We're, we're like, you know, why software instead of, uh, I don't know, whatever the alternative might have been. Why'd you get into it? Like, I don't know. What, like, I always wonder why people like you ended up where you are, which is great for us. But, but you know, what were the alternatives at the time? It, it had you a... Uh, oh, yeah. At least uh, you know? Actually, what I'm trying to remember, did I ever think of any other alternatives? Um, I mean, before you knew of computers, what, what was your thinking? Like, I'm going to be an astronaut. I don't know, something like that. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, you know... It was funny because it's sort of quite, I, I was really, I think I was young and I, but I can't remember when exactly. Um, right. I, I mean, I was, I was always kind of nerdy, like into science and stuff. Um, yeah. And then at so, some one point I discovered a book on computers that oh. my uncle had left lying around the house. Mm -hmm. And... And we're talking a lot, I mean, we're actually talking a long time ago. This was, I mean, gosh, it was, I mean, it must have been like maybe late 70s. Okay. Whoa. And I just, I somehow, I just became fascinated by, by this computer thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, it got, it was really funny. Like I didn't even own one much later in life, but you know, there were various points in my life. I mean, this must have been like when I was 15 or something like that. I would go to the local computer store where they had a Commodore PET. You remember that brand? No, 
I mean, I know Commodore certainly, but the PET, which was the uh... yeah, gosh, was that like a six five zero two eight bit processor, ridiculously slow clock speed? That storage mechanism was a cassette tape drive. Right. <laughs> All a bit better than a punch card. Yeah, I managed to miss out on the punch card thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, cassette tape drive was was pretty radical at one point. Yeah. Um, anyway, so somehow I just got kind of hooked on on computers, and yeah, here I am a lifetime later. Um, <laughs> it's worked out okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's not bad. It's not bad. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. It's hard to imagine doing anything else, to be honest. Well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is the thing, right? Uh, this is one thing I don't think is uh, if you get to the point where you're having fun with software, and I'm not saying that's for everybody, but if you manage to get to that point, it is very addictive. It is very satisfying to succeed. And not that I would know, but I've been told, <laughs> been told it's very addictive to succeed at software, you know, like to, to win, you know, to uh, to. Uh, build something and see it work. Uh, it's, uh, there's a chemical yeah. reaction yeah. that is... Uh, yeah, like addictive. even when I've had jobs that sucked, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. there are various points in my career where I've had a job that was just sucky kind of work environment. Work was, it the, was that the people? It's never the software. It's the people around it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's primarily the culture and, and yeah, people. Right, they they're mm -hmm. what make the job suck. But I mean, I've always right. loved the technology part of it. But the, yeah. where whatever was going on in that company at that time was was most unsatisfying. But I've all throughout that, I've always enjoyed um, tech. And actually, yeah. you know, in a way, one of the some of the times when it's really sucked the most is when you know you feel like you're not accomplishing anything. Story of my life. No, oh, come on. But, you know, it's funny. There's actually a book, which might have been an article, called The Productivity Principle. Mm -hmm. And it just basically says that one of the key factors that makes a job enjoyable is actually feeling like you've, at the end of each day, feeling like you've accomplished something. Yeah. And I, yes. I, there have been times when, I mean, that's been some aspects of jobs that have sort of been un unsatisfying have lacked the, the sense of accomplishment. You ever, you ever read the book Drive by Daniel H. Pink? No, no, I know of it. But. Oh, it's it talks about why people do what they do, and it talks about a uh, Drive 1.0 is like perpetuation of the species, you know, like eating other more carnal instincts. Okay, that's Drive 1.0. Uh, drive 2.0 is carrot and stick, like you incentivize somebody by uh, reducing tax or, or giving away, making it financially advantageous for people to do a thing, and you discourage it by making it financially disadvantageous for somebody to do a thing. So a lot of states will tax alcohol, vices, whatever, you know, uh, because they want to, that's the stick, but they want to make it easier. They want to encourage families, so they make they make it so that you get a, a, a discount on your um, tax for that if you're married and have a family. But then, but that doesn't explain open source, right? Those two drive engines don't explain like why people do things for free, you know, like uh, or or out of the goodness yeah. of their heart. 
it just doesn't work in that world. Right? A lot of a lot of what we do, like what like uh, an example they bring up is like Wikipedia. You know, if you if you had asked a classic economist in the 1990s and said, hey, why, what what is going to be the best uh, encyclopedia product? Microsoft Encarta, paid by Microsoft with you know paying a fleet of people working eight eight hours a day, the best of the best, being paid gobs of money, or this ragtag amateur outfit with like eight people working on entirely on the basis of donations by volunteers all around the world doing it for free and for clout, you know, which one's going to produce the better product? And the classic economist would have certainly said Encarta, right? That would be the, yeah, yeah. but of course it isn't. And same thing for Firefox. Why did that take off? You know, um, you know, it is actually funny. I mean, that you bring up open source, um, right? Um, Cause on the one hand you're right. I mean, it is, it is yeah, right. people doing, yeah. doing it for the love of it basically and for the most part but it is it is this i i part of me does think that it's overly worshipped and i really wish there was actually a way to enable open source developers to actually properly profit from the people companies that make money in some cases huge amounts of money from open source right like it's not it it, it's very hard to do open source um, right as a as a viable business model right Uh, we should touch on that in a second but yeah yeah, that's a whole other thing but but the the book it concludes that uh basically you get the reason people do this the the reason drive 3.0 going back to what you're talking about being about being satisfied with what you've done uh, a reason that people do these things, uh, and this goes to the discussion on open source, because you don't need to be an open source to get these same results if you know what you're looking for, uh, which is basically time. You have control over what you're doing, how you're doing it, and when you're doing it, right? Uh, and uh, and basically that whole sense of being invested in something, it promotes that sense of being invested in something. If you can control how you're doing it, what you're doing, and when and how. Right? And, and the example they gave in the in the book was um, Zappos. You know, the customer service. For oh example, yeah, the shoes, the shoe e that got absorbed by Amazon some years ago. Yeah, they they were selling shoes on the internet, very intimate affair, right? Like I I want to walk around in shoes. I need to be able to feel that. You know, it's not something I want to do sight unseen on a web page. Yeah. Uh, and yet people did, and that's that, that was exactly their proposition. And, and the way they made that viable was by saying, "Hey, look, if you contact our customer service, we're not going to have some drone." reading a script, trying to force you to keep the, 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 the shoes that you don't want, trying to saddle you with charges and all that. Instead, we're going to make it so that if you buy a pair of shoes, you get them delivered and you don't like them, you can send them back pain-free. You can talk to the representative immediately. There's no, like, you know, there's no... Yeah. Basically, they had to make the call customer service experience impeccable. It had to be so good that it felt painless. And the only way that could happen is if you made the people working in the customer service department partners in the in the result in the project right and so you made so what they did was they said okay we're not going to force people to go to the office this is just a phone call they can do it from home we're, we're going to let them do whatever they want it was like the original gig economy right they can get if they have kids they need to take to school or pick up from school they don't have to be uncle you know do whatever you want sign in when you want take calls you can do it when you want yeah. and you can solve the problem any way you want like there's no like preferred outcome here if you talk to them and don't want to talk about sports for 20 minutes be our guest as long as they feel like they came away from the conversation happy that they did so right uh, and so people became, first of all, call centers, the, the retention rate went through the roof. People stayed in the call centers because they, they didn't feel like they were being abused. They didn't feel like they, 
because nobody wants to work at a job where you're constantly being dealt with, you're dealing with unca- unhappy customers all day. It's, it's demoralizing. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this fixed all those issues. It gave people this feeling of, I am part of the solution as opposed to just a cog in the machine. I'm invested in the outcome and I'll, you know, I want the result. Uh, and so again, if you know that, and if you think about what software gives you, GitHub open source software gives you, sure, it gives you that if it's done right. But similarly, it could you could work in open source and not get that. And then also you could work in proprietary software and have that, right? It's not exclusive oh, yeah. either. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, you know, it is, I mean, it, it is. You do want work environments that empower people to be human, right? Whereas yeah. like customer support customer service is a great example right where sometimes you're communicating with a customer service person and you honestly i honestly don't know whether they're a bot oh i'm so sad they don't want to do that oh i am sorry that you're having this problem i understand how difficult that might be for you You with completely robotic scripted and i'm sure it's a human but they have Basically, their job is actually kind of dehumanize them and just turn them into corporate blurb bots, right? Oh, and and yeah. but that's that, yeah. And there's, there's a lot of work environments that that, that do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I I wanted to get we I want to go touch on the the thing you were talking about earlier, which is uh, making it financially rewarding to work in software. But I feel like we're kind of and it, oh, uh, it's a it's no great time to ask this. What would you recommend now that we're talking about the sort of beginning of your journey? What would you recommend for others who are looking to break in to get into software? Like what do what should they in twenty twenty three world? Obviously, you no, know, your experiences are useful, but you know, relative to today, knowing what you know, what what would you say to young people looking to break or any people looking to break into the industry? Oh, right. okay. Plastics, my boy. Oh, no, sorry, wrong <laughs> topic. Uh, no, I, I mean, like, what, what do I think? You know, I mean, there's a few sort of philosophical ideas, right? I mean, I feel like people should be curious, right? They should be humble. They, they should recognize that it depends. Like, you know, sure. a key thing in software is that it really does depend on, a, you know, any design decision is not sort of, necessarily black or white right and then you know related to that is the concept of no silver bullets um yeah and just to you know especially to be curious and constantly learn right right? and then also recognize that you know you're in a like you i mean i wrote about this i think yesterday right i mean we're sort of you know in the software field we all think it's new like it's all super young field I mean, in a way, it is relative to some ancient disciplines, right? But, you know, there are software concepts dating back 50-plus years, right? Um, you know, concepts of modularity, you know, that's like, nine, was it 19 Parnas, 1972, 73? Right. Mythical Man Months, 1975, right? Which is all about teams. Yeah. Um, coupling cohesion right that's like another 70s concept yeah so 50 plus years for all the good stuff i mean yeah and what's even even more than that like so much of the fundamentals were actually sort of in a sense figured out 50 years ago right right yeah, yeah. and yeah 
you know, like so many of the challenges that we face in the industry or some people organizations face is that they then go and ignore all of those fundamentals, right? You know, like their whole way of structuring teams probably violates the mythical man month, right? They build right. Couple, tightly coupled systems where, which kills productivity. Yeah. I So the mythical man month, of course, is the, the book that, famously introduced the notion that, you know, the, non, the nonsensical sort of notion that, you know, if you add more people to the project, uh, you'll be able to divide or, or, or uh, reduce the time it takes to develop the software. And then, of course, in the book, they say that's a little, doesn't actually hold up to water. You can't, you know, if it takes one woman to nine months to have a, have a baby, it's not going to take three women, three months to have a baby. Right? It's not, it doesn't work like that. Some things take nine months and that's the, yeah. Had that analogy about a, a pregnancy, you know. Well, um, yeah, I mean, well, well, I think one of the phrases is right. Adding people, extra people, to an already late project makes it right. even later, right? Because, exactly. um, you know, you're you're dominated by the cost. I mean, it just increases the cost of communication and coordination between the teams, right? Right. And we see Conway talk about that also in the seventies. The cost of communication. Oh yeah, I mean that's another sort of ancient thing, right? right. Conway's yeah. law, which once again is kind of ignored by people, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, there was some even some more interesting research, which was like someone, some organization found that a team of five people m could get more or less the same amount of work done as a team of twenty, um, oh, simply with, with higher quality. <laughs> Is this, and this, I think, so when we talk about, uh, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but does this all, is this all precursor to sort of the rediscovery of, you know, two pizza box teams and all this kind of stuff in the last 10, 15 odd years? Like, well, I think it's all, I mean, like, yeah, the two pizza teams, though, of course, that depends on how big your pizza is, right? Yeah, sure. Or how big your appetite is, but yes, anyway. Yeah. Like you know, places where, gosh, you get a lot, you order a large pizza, that's just two people. Yeah. yeah. America, a large. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, right. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's sort and of also, restatement of, yeah. you know, because it's all about people, right? And fundamentally, yeah. people don't change. Oh, go on. I just wanted to, there's a, a parody Bill Murray account, and one of my my favorite tweets ever which is any pizza can be a personal pan pizza if you believe in yourself right <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's my yeah. life it's just my life now you know yeah anyway well, well i think yeah like one of the reasons these principles are so long lasting is that it's not about technology it's about people yeah right? software is always built by people and well, they they the chat they the chat yeah, we should get to that. <laughs> Sorry. No. So yeah, people and they people need to communicate, right? And and so if you have a large team, it's dominated by communication, right? And sure. I mean, the trick is, obviously, there is software that needs to be developed by more than five people, or whatever you know, team topologies like five to nine people. But the trick is to actually split it up into these loosely coupled teams that rarely need to coordinate their work. Right. They have a surface area that's well understood and documented, the API or whatever. And then yeah, exactly. 
Um, the example they were giving in the the mythical man month actually was an operating system, which is one of those things where I suppose if you're building a monolith like like Linux is a uh, is not a microkernel, it's a monolithic kernel, right? Um, it's one big morass of code, very very sort of tightly linked to each other. Um, is it possible to like are there some endeavors, some projects for which this this uh, accepted wisdom is not true? Like, can I build? Well, I guess I just gave the answer that the microkernel would suggest I could have small, loosely coupled teams, right? But is there some, are there some things for which that's not true where you do need to just have a lot of people with a lot of overhead focusing on one thing conceivably? Well, conceivably. Don't know. Uh, yeah. But when, yeah, I guess I sort of feel that you can always, you should always be able to split things up into module and into loosely coupled modules. Yeah, that's true. Even assembly has code pages and stuff, you know, it should be possible to extricate these things from each other. <sighs> okay, so. Um, yeah, yeah. The, 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 team structure, the five, so you mentioned five, and of course that gets us to the, you know, the rule of five, 50, and 500, right? The, uh, the amount of things we can keep our, you know, I, I think it's about mental bandwidth, right? Like you know, five is how many people you can keep, um, people whose status you can keep in your head. Yeah, well, the, the yeah, it was like the, what's it, Dunbar, Dunbar's number? Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a very interesting just it's it's it, there's a lot of things to back up this idea of five people you know a small pizza box yeah. team five people Dunbar's number it just seems well, to the analogies to be fair goes up to like five to nine people right and then you yeah. can have analogies with well actually I guess soccer teams even though there's only there's a small relatively small number of fit people on the field you could actually right. have more back in wherever they hang out when they're not on the sidelines right but, but it's sort of small, smallish, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, I wonder if that, is there, is it true for everything? Like, I guess a restaurant, if you had like 20 people working in a restaurant, that would feel chaotic, uh, or at least certainly. I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out where that number. Well, there's sort of, I mean, I feel maybe there's a difference between like very rigid work environments, right? Yeah. Like. I mean, you could say like working like a factory. I guess there are right. factories that have thousands of people, right? But it's all, you know, they're, 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 they're sort of implementing different steps of a very well thought out process, right? And the lanes Where, are clear. What's that? The lanes in which they have to, to which, to which they have yeah. to be understood. But software is, 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 you know, despite efforts to the contrary, is not a factory. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> it, it is a design process, which is all about. I mean, it's all very conceptual, and and it's a learning exercise, and it's a communicating mm -hmm. ex a, a communication exercise. And so, it it it. I think it does. You know, there are these constraints. Yeah, is learning how heavily does the ability to learn from what you're doing impact or inform the way you build software? To what extent is being a learning organization an end goal? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I... <laughs> well, you, you think about... I mean, that kind of like goes back to sort of software development co culture, right? Right. The idea is that you, you're, you very much need to be a learning organization, right? Because mm -hmm. you are... I mean, presumably, if you're writing some software, you're actually doing something novel, right? Well, I, oh, speak for yourself. <laughs> well, I, I feel very attacked. <laughs> How dare you? Anyway, carry on. Well, <laughs> why do you just keep doing the same thing over and over again? Ow. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna just—I'll be over here if you need me. <laughs> but you know, okay. If you're a develop enterprise developer, right? Yeah. I mean, presumably the software that you're building actually is 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 distinctive, right? Yeah. Because if it's not distinctive, why didn't you just buy it in a generic sense from someone buy someone's product or SaaS service, right? Yeah. You wouldn't be repeatedly reinventing the wheel, even though I actually suspect a whole lot of that goes on, right? Yeah. But I mean, you should, you know. What, what's that? Oh, we know it does. Look at Stack Overflow. How many people are asking the same question? Well, yeah, but you should be building novel things, right? And with novelty, I mean, by definition, you do not know what you're doing, right? You, you mm -hmm. kind of think you do. You have a rough idea, but along the way, you discover what's really happening and, and you know, and say mistakes get made and you should be constantly learning from those mistakes, right? You mm -hmm. know? So if something goes, I mean, this, all, this is very clear when you have production outages, right? You have a post-mortem blame-free where you actually have an honest discussion about what went wrong, right? And how you can learn from that and 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 improve as an organization. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that 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 is extremely healthy. I mean, sadly, there are companies where that doesn't happen. Right, something yeah. goes wrong. You find someone to blame, right? Scapegoat. Maybe. Oh yes, let's just blame the the consultant, the external mm -hmm. organization, and then move on. Learn nothing from the mistake, and then just carry on, right? Right. And I, you know, which is bizarre, but that you know, there there. I mean, there are companies with which have that culture. And means you don't get better as an organization. And of course, we're bound to those those companies, like all that seem to forget the lessons of history, are bound to repeat those same mistakes, right? Um, you just mentioned yeah. learning. We talk about learning here, and I think learning is really important, especially in a small team, because you don't want to be, uh, you know, there's that bus factor, right? And so we have a great question here. Um, Raja, Raja asks, what are some strategies we can use to reduce the truck bus factor in the team, right? Which is the dependency on one or two people, for example. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the thing about um, kind of like collective as in team is team ownership on the co of code, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think sometimes, I think I've encountered this where you know some organizations they seem to have a service per developer so you have the whatever team and then on 
that team. There's Tom, Tom has implemented a microservice. Mary has implemented a microservice and so on and so forth, right? Right. And there's not really a team, right? right. It, it, it's like a collection of teams of one who happen to have the same daily standup, right? Right. Whereas, you know, if you actually practice code ownership, um, yeah. collect code ownership there, you know, each team owns their code base and people work on it interchangeably, um, then I think that's a good way of, of just kind of, that, I think that's a much better way of working. You've, you've got a, so this brings that whole, that what you just said about having these really small services that reminds me of our old friend, uh, Fred, Fred George, um, who talks about having like literally micro services, right? Like uh, services so small that you could just throw them away if you wanted to redo it, right? They're, they're like, they're, they're yeah. it reduces the surface area and therefore it makes it easier to, to evolve and you don't have to write tests because you can just see what everything's doing in plain sight. And I always thought that was kind of an interesting take. What is the, how do you describe, like we've talked about teams and when I think of microservices, I think of teams, not line size, but is there something from that angle? Could you, are there, how would you describe the, you know, what is the bound, the extent of a service, which it no longer is a microservice, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, uh, you know, to be honest, I mean, I think it all depends upon your context, which includes what kind of application you're building it and what, and who's building it. But I, I, I lean very much in the direction of kind of having relatively coarse-grained services. Like, like if you think about one of the key goals of microservices is team autonomy. You know, so a yeah. team is able to develop, build, test, deploy, scale their service independently of what everyone else is doing. Then you can achieve that with just one service per, for the team. Yeah, right? makes sense. And so, and and because and then, it, what's more, right, is the more services you have, the more complex your system is, and you're starting to get into issues around performance, data consistency. Oh dear. Runtime coupling. Yeah. Uh, plus, I mean, but then on top of that, I think I think a really hard thing to do is to define your service boundaries because um, you know, you have to design them in a way that you have you minimize design time coupling, right? Like the likelihood of two two services having to change in lockstep. So because it's hard, I would argue the fewer the better. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, and then by the way, what I've sort of talked about is I, I mean, there, there are all these criteria or forces that you need to take into account when designing a microservice architecture. And I, I call those the dark energy and dark matter forces, right? Dark oh, energy, because cool. it, I did it because it sounded cool. It, it um, does sound cool. And it's yeah. galactic brain, you know? Yeah. And it's, it metaphors from astrophysics, right? Yeah. So, you know, dark energy is an anti-gravity that is causing the expansion of the universe to accelerate. Because you'd sort of expect some the universe to 
and gradually slow down, right? That's yeah, the more mass it's moving, you think it would Apparently, you know, what was it, 14, 13 billion years ago, the universe was in a hot, dense state. Oh, wait, that's something else. Um, and But then, so the Big Bang happened, was it 13 million years ago? And then it slowed down, but then apparently 7 billion years ago, it started accelerating. <laughs> that's so cool notion of a of dark energy pushing matter apart right yeah which is like i don't know it's partially i think some of these astrophysicists just make stuff up actually please do not they they're, they're having fun again go yeah. back to the cool and then so that's dark energy anti-gravity that's pushing in the case of a microservice architecture, your subdomains or your bounded contexts apart into separate services. So you can have team autonomy, a fast deployment pipeline and, and things like that, right? So is then, the, okay. I'll go on. Oh no, please. Oh, if you then, there's, then there's dark matter. Yeah. Which is yet another invisible thing that these astrophysicists have, have created um, which is this matter that you can't see, but it appears to have a gravi gravitational effect. Um, it's kind of like... Externalities like people? Like Kepler's third law, which I can barely remember, but apparently the speed at which, say, a planet goes around the sun is, is, is a function of the mass of the two bodies and, and I guess, the distance, right? And what okay. they observed is stars rotating around galaxies in a way that there is more mass than can be visibly observed. Hence, <laughs> we have dark matter to, right. to make up the difference. Right? And then they noticed that only because of the, the light bends in certain ways, things like that. that it's, it's, a, it's like the orbital velocity is is something like it's faster i think it's faster than it should be right quickly go oh. to wikipedia and look up kepler's third i think it's kepler's third law so cool. um, yeah so it's like there's more mass in the center of the gap of these galaxies than is already that than can be observed and that so that's like there's this attractive force acting upon your subdomains that actually resists putting them in separate services. Like the, like the fact that partially it's due to the fact that the network is costly, right? Yeah. So you can get into efficiency issues. Then there's also the fact that if you have an operation that spans services, it can't be acid. It needs to be eventually consistent, which is which a far is more complex programming model so the, right. those are, so you've got five forces that are pushing your subdomains apart and then you have five forces that are um making them making you want to put them in a monolith which gets us rather perfectly to a question that our friend thomas asked some minutes ago how many teams could work on a modulith so obviously in the spring team now we have a product called spring moduliths but so basically a well-factored modular monolith, right? Thoughts on any of this? Um, you know, I I don't really I don't have a good number, right? Um, other than yeah, 
42, I guess. <laughs> right, yeah. Okay. No. So, I mean, so, you know, one way to think about it is, so like, you know, like a, a good development practice is continuous delivery, mm-hmm. right? which, are, you know, which is where, you know, every developer commits to trunk every day, right? And that, that um, commit flows through your deployment pipeline, which builds tests and then ideally pushes it into production. Mm-hmm. So that's the, uh, I love continuous delivery. That's the original continuous delivery book. That's uh, uh, the idea of committing to trunk, trunk-based development, right? And well, Yeah, and um, regular frequently as right. well. Right? Daily integrations, no lo- outstanding branches, no long-lived branches. Yeah. Um, so if you believe in continuous integration, you, you must integrate continuously, not... Right. And I guess there are some people that would say that, like, cause, so if you commit into trunk all the time, uh, then, you know, the question is, okay, well, what if it's not ready, you know? And then it talks about this discussion around feature flags and, uh, yeah. and all that. And a lot of people say, well, isn't there some middle ground? Can't I use a branch and then like integrate every other day, wherever, you know? And it's, um, I don't know. There, some people could say you can do continuous delivery without trunk-based development and like they're not you know, get flow for example is a very common practice i don't think these people would describe themselves as waterfall adherents right like they're they, they think of yeah. themselves as being continuously well, i mean you know there 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 i mean one shouldn't be completely dogmatic but there are but there mm-hmm. is this notion that you have a stream of small changes flowing from developer laptop in into production right yeah. So, so like one really interesting issue there, I would argue, is is what's the maximum throughput of your deployment pipeline, right? You mean how many times can I go from zero to finished per day? Yes. Okay. Right. And like, let's just, I mean, I, you know. I mean, maybe the math is a bit more complicated than this, but like, let's imagine that your build takes 15 minutes, mm-hmm. right? So let's, and then let's assume an eight hour workday. So, right. 24? Uh, 30. So that's 32. Yeah. Right. Which sort of assumes that <laughs> they don't all arrive at once, right? Yeah. But, you know, so just some basic sort of modeling there suggests that you know, eventually the, the rate of commits will actually exceed your de- the capacity of your deployment pipeline, no matter how much technology you throw at the deployment pipeline to, to, um, to scale it, right? Yeah. Parallelize, you know, I mean, there's build caching, so on and so forth, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, heck, your monolith can get so big that it actually takes a long time. Just starting it up can yeah. take a long time, right? And that gets that should definitely be a metric you consider when you think about your total time to production. You know, it's yeah, just actual warm up stage. So, like one one, you know, like how? So the question is, how many teams can work on a modulith that you know then does get back to this whole? I mean, one of the key things is, you know. 
what is the limiting factor of your deployment pipeline. Oh, wow. Because if you're doing, so that if you have to make a change and you don't get to see it delivered to production pretty quick, like until tomorrow morning, you, you kick it off at four, whatever, 4.50 PM. It's effectively, you're not going to see it until tomorrow morning. And so you've, you've lost one, uh, one of those chances to gain insight. Yeah. Now, of course, one workaround to this problem is to back, <laughs> is to commit changes less often, right? Yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, then that gets into the, then you're basically batching changes and big chunks yeah. of, of changes are then going into production. Which is dangerous because now the, you've got more risk in one batch. Well, I mean, the continuous delivery book talks about the very uh, sense, sense, sensical. What's the opposite of nonsensical? They're very sensible. sensible? Yeah, sensible. Yeah. <laughs> it, it talks about the very sensible idea that if you want to de-risk uh, the, 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 the process of deploying software, you just do it more often and do it more quickly so, the, so that if you make a mistake, you can just back out of it, press on very, very yeah. quickly. As opposed to, like, I have these six-month, I'm using air quotes here for the people on the podcast here, Six month air quote sprints, um, six week uh, sprint. That's not a sprint, you know. Uh, and these large organizations, they, they deploy, gathered around in the war room on a Friday night, you know, that the mythical, the the, the Phoenix Project style. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, that's that's because if there's a mistake, it's going to be another few months before you get a chance to undo it or roll it back, you know. Uh, um, yeah, and you know, just as a reminder, while we, while we've been talking right amazon say have been deploying changes i don't know is it every point six seconds right something yeah. i gather some change right and and you, you know and it's like well if you want to compete you know and, and to me like i feel like a lot of companies are at risk because some fast moving competitor could actually out outdo them Right by yeah. being able to deliver software much more rapidly, frequently, and reliably. Um, and then the, you know the other thing, which is it's like I feel like one inherent limitation of the monolith, right, is it's using the same technology stack. Yeah. Right. And so when you want to upgrade some dependency or all your language runtime, right? You have to make that change to your entire code base. Oof, yeah. Right? And fingers crossed, hopefully it's just a matter of incrementing the using the new version and just rebuilding, right? But then sometimes there are changes that you have to make, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the larger your monolith go, be, gets the bigger the invest you know even you know the lot presumably the more valuable it becomes but the more entrenched your particular technology choices become right right but what if you have uh, 20 microservices and they're all using spring boot now you've got this problem divided costs you still have to upgrade all of them yeah well, it's just worse it's an interesting thing um but i can do it one at a time right so rather right. than one big upgrade project. Oh, I, can, yeah. 
I can do it one at a time, um, which I arguably is easier to schedule. Um, and maybe it's broken down the problem because maybe different services use different parts of, say, some of the Spring framework. And so right. some of them uh, are easier to upgrade than others. Right. And then, or you want to upgrade to a new version of Java. Yeah. Right. You know, then there's, I mean, I think we all know about there's applications that are stuck on some ancient version. Yeah. Right. Because the idea of upgrading is so overwhelming, right? Yeah. And, you know, plus, I mean, the one funny thing is Java has been remarkably successful, right, at, at sort of, at, well, longevity, right? But you think yeah. about all these ancient enterprise applications that were built with ancient technologies. Yeah. And companies have massive problems as a result, Right. I, I mean, so I think like, you know, there's, there's various metaphors for software. Yeah. Um, and one of them, you know, one of the, remember there's that idea of a boat and you replace bits of the boat, one plank at a oh, time. Oh, the philosophical yeah. question. Um, oh, what was his name? Is it still the same boat? Yeah. But, or the other one, which I like, and I actually talked about a lot when I first started talking about microservices, but I haven't talked about it in a few years, is you think about the human body. And yeah. I mean, components of your body undergo replacement all the time, yeah. right? And yet we, we still remain ourselves. Well, mostly anyway. Yeah. So, you know, and I, and I think software should be like that. I mean, I feel like we should be, we build applications that can live a very long time and we ought to be able to incrementally upgrade parts of them. There was a comment just yeah. flashed up that, that looked really interesting. Yeah, well, there's been a few here. First, we have a modular monolith with around 70 modules refactored a couple of years ago. It's a 20 year old app with 15,000 plus tests and it takes 30 minutes to build with parallel test execution. They have plans to split the app in the future. I don't think it's a question so much as it's just a oh. checking in and it's really good. And then another question asks, and I like this one, <clears throat> what's a quote unquote large modulith to both of you mean? What size are we talking about? Which gets us back to, I think the constraint <laughs> yeah. is not lines of code, it's how long it, how long it takes to get feedback on that, right? And, and make change, effect change, which is a I, I mean, I wish I were, there was an easy answer to this large question of like, how large is large, right? right. Like, it sort of goes back to how many teams can work on a monolith, right, or modulith. Um, and it's like, I, I don't know, but maybe it would be good to actually have a survey, which is like, this is how long it takes our app to build, right? And just yeah. gather a whole bunch of statistics around that. Oh, um, that's a great idea. Twitter. Yeah. You know, it's funny in my brain, I got a whole bunch of research questions like that. Because, so part of it is maybe the other way of looking at it is okay, you're built, you're responsible for an application and it's just, it's growing, right? Um, by the way, that's like an ancient law of software development, Lehman's Laws, which I just wrote about yesterday. 
Yeah. Um, like one of the Lehman's laws of software evolution, which basically says software, in order to be successful, apps constantly, applications constantly have to change. All right. Which is, you know, that was from 1974. Um, and they also grow in complexity and you really have to ta manage that complexity. But so maybe a good way to think about it is, um, you know, you're an architect of an application. How do you know when you're starting to sort of out, let's say it's a monolith, how, how do you know when you're starting to outgrow your monolith, right? Because I, I would argue that is, um, I mean, I think that's really the essence of this question, right? And so part yeah. of that is, so let's assuming that you're doing continuous delivery um, and all of the other good parts of DevOps as defined by the DevOps handbook, right? So your slow development process is not masking any problems with your actual underlying architecture, right? Right. Um, then, you know, so you want to be gathering metrics around things like deployment pipe or lead time, like how fast does it take to, um, um, for your deployment pipeline to execute, you know, um, how many commits per day are you doing, right? Yeah. Also, how reliable are those deployment, how many deployments per day are you doing and how reliable those deployments are doing? and just monitor that and make sure that those metrics are healthy. And then when they're not, um, start fixing, yeah. well, fixing them in some way. Um, I always say, I mean, I always say this, architecture is a, it's what we do given constraints and, uh, you know, your build time is as valid a constraint as anything. If you move to microservices because of build time, that's not wrong. That's a reason, you know. Well, it, it is all about sp speed, fast feedback, yeah. right? And which making it sound like it's about build time sort of trivializes it because I think there's more to fast build time than simply having a fast build, right? But, right. you know, while, you know, end users want a system that's usable, hopefully us developers want a system that is developable, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, and part of that, I think, is fast feedback. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you wanna you wanna have in place like an actual architecture group or person or role or whatever. So rather than architects being people who just work on big features, you wanna have architects who do architecture and monitoring all of the sort of the vital signs of your application, both runtime and development time. And then act on, have the time available to act on it um, as appropriate. Is that sort of is that sort of work out of band work? Like, do you need to involve everybody for that, or can that? Is there some things that an architect can or should be able to affect by themselves? Uh, you know, well, too much. Well, so someone or some group, right? Needs to be someone needs to be responsible for. Um, architecture, sure. right? In, in a meaningful sense of the word. Yeah. Um, so that that's so that's definitely part of it. And then, uh, to be honest, the other really interesting part, which is sort of 
like how easy i mean the interesting one is like how how time consuming is it to keep you the dependencies of your code base up to date Oi. yeah it's like both say your because you know like one of the other goals of architecture is that your technology stack should be current or you know it's sort of a somewhat book i read said it, the, the importance of a technology in your organization should mirror the importance of that technology in the marketplace, right? <laughs> Which sort of means that you don't want to be using things that are necessarily too new, but you shouldn't be using them that are too old, right? Right. And I, and I think a lot of organizations, I mean, it, it's keeping things current, I yeah. think it's a problem. Yeah. Oh, big, oh, for sure. I mean, we had a uh, John Schneider. He, he created Micrometer, and uh, and now he's, he's he works on Open Rewrite. And uh, the core conceit of that amazing project is just to help you refactor your code bases in an automated way. It'll upgrade dependencies, upgrade your code to move to Spring Boot three, for example. You know, from two seven or two uh, Yeah. Upgrade Hibernate for all of its various iterations. You know, it's just a programmatic way to interrogate a code base. And then apply refactors, or refactors. Yeah. I mean, you know. maybe if you have a massive code base, you can yeah. open rewrite all of your problems away. But I suspect that the larger the code base and the what's the word, the diversity of its dependencies, the, yeah. the larger the task. And I think that, to me, is another compelling argument for trying to keep your app sort of keep the individual sort of applications smallish, right? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't know what smallish is, like I don't know what large it large is either, but having it broken up into these manageable pieces. Yeah. And you could, I mean, which you, I, I, I would call them services, but you can, yeah, they're just programs that, that you can, that build fast and also you can upgrade fast as well. In response to feedback, one hopes. Um, this is a tortured segue, but it's all I got. Uh, <laughs> microservices typically run in the cloud. Why did you build Cloud Foundry? Eh. So let's go back a little bit, okay? We, Let's go back to you. We established you were a child and then suddenly we're talking about architecture. He's a child, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I don't know. And then, and then at some point, you you created this thing called Cloud Foundry. Like, uh, you joined. Oh, uh, what was that journey about? Like, actually, this is a great. This is a funny story, right? Yeah. So, back in two thousand and six, I actually I still do. I haven't done anything. I run the local Java users group, right? Yeah. And for, we had. One month we had a speaker, you might know, Patrick Chan is on from oh, Google, wow. come talk about their APIs, right? Yeah. Out, I think. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, was the first time I went to a Korean restaurant in, in, in my life and started my, my love affair with Korean food. Um, and then the next month we had one of the evangelists from Amazon come visit. Right. Yeah. And remember, this was October 2006, I think. Okay. Yeah. And 
come out. I remember through. Amazon? They were a book bookseller. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we thought they'd come talk about APIs for books, buying books, right? Kind of analogous to Google Checkout or something like that. Yeah. But instead, um, the guy talked about Ada EC2, um, S3, SQS, which just blew my mind, right? Wow, you mean you can provision 20 servers and only pay 10 cents an hour? Well, or pay, you know, provision them instantly or relatively yeah. instantly and pay 10 cents per hour per server. I mean, that just blew my mind, right? Because yeah. yeah, I was so used to traditional environments where it's really hard to get resources. And then, I, so I ended up creating this open source project called Cloud Tools um, that would basically take a Java war file and provision the infrastructure. Um, remember, this was bare bones EC2, so there was nothing like that, right? But it like, I think it would spin up Apache, Tomcat, MySQL, and do load balancing and actually auto scale it. And, you know, that was with Cloud Foundry, but Cloud Tools just let you spin up, just type in a command and provision a bunch of EC2 stuff and, and configure them, right? Right. And then that eventually evolved into Cloud Foundry. Um, uh, and that, that was sort of ex that was triggered by the 2008 event financial crash yeah because all the consulting business evaporated um and so i was a zero yeah i was running me zero revenue consulting company and i thought thought it would be better to be a zero revenue startup as well right <laughs> sounds better yeah. so we me and my friend, colleague, Dimitri Volk, we pivoted from being consultants to actually building Cloud Foundry. So, and Cloud Foundry was, like you said, a great way. And I remember the news of Cloud Foundry kind of hit the uh, Spring community quickly because people were like naturally interested in it. It was a way to run Java apps, Spring apps of the day, you know, uh, in Tomcat, right? It was naturally, and I remember, um, it's not like people weren't already deploying Java Spring apps into Amazon before, but this just seemed like such a turnkey way to go go quickly to production, right? Yeah, and th yeah, this was very much back in the early days, and yeah, and the, you know, like one of the success stories was there was a there was an um, digital agency that was running Super Bowl ads whose URL I guess redirected to a. a website that was running on, implemented by a java app that was um um you know um provisioned by cloud well cloud tools and then cloud foundry and or cool. in the run-up anyway they they would run ads and then that triggered more visits and so they they'd scale up and then when they weren't running ads it would scale down and it was all about beer and something and it was nice. like a, example of being able to scale up and down in the cloud and that was like an early success story that's awesome and so so this is i remember i mean it was it it really resonated with a lot of people it was very successful and so it wasn't very surprising uh, at all when not too long i don't know how long cloud foundry was out in the name under the name cloud foundry but it felt like it was a year at most or whatever to from my memory and then suddenly 
uh, Spring Source acquired you and yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it was kind of like I learned about EC2 in 06, got access to it in 07, started building Cloud Foundry in the summer of 08, or maybe a little bit, but focused on Cloud Foundry in the summer of 08, and then, yeah, acquired like a year, basically a year later. Yeah, and then, and then, and then acquired again uh, by VMware a year after that, it feels like. Uh, yeah. So that was a, a fun ride. So that was around 2009, and then I joined in 2010, and then uh, you and I got to work together. That was yeah. fun for me. Um, fun for me, too. Well, it was fun for me because I got to work with you. It was fun for you because you got to work with Indian food. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I did. I enjoyed traveling around the world, yeah. India, with you. Oh, that was so much fun. And, and with Patrick, who who you talked oh. about a minute ago, yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, I love <laughs> India and eating nothing but Indian food. Uh, three, three meals a day for two weeks. I was in heaven. And that was just one trip. We did many of those trips per year. It was, oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, that was, a, that was great. Um, and then you kind of, so you, now, you know, that during that time, you're already doing a lot of the... Uh, prophetic work around uh, microservices and uh, talking about the, the themes of, the, that we've kind of tread in this very discussion. But again, 12 years ago, you know, 13 years ago, it, it, you were already talking about this year earlier, even still, obviously. Uh, and well, it, you, you know, just, I, I, I first gave a talk, I, I, I first actually gave a talk about microservices, even though they weren't called that in 2012. Actually, which was in Kiev. Of all yeah. Places. Oh, the spring day, um, spring day, or whatever it was called. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And and it just yeah, and it was just ah, oh, give a talk about this. It was interest. I it, it was it, it was interesting for me because had like Cloud Foundry that I built was a monolith, and it had there were operational issues. Um, right. And and then I read this book that said, well, you can break up your monolith into multiple pieces, and which was like kind of obvious to say that, but at the time it was like, wow, that's a really good idea, and it would have solved some of the many of the issues that we had had with Cloud Foundry. Interestingly, even though we were a small team, it was actually quite a two people complex application with sort of very diverse chunks of functionality, which would have been better off deployed as services. Right. So that's that's sort of why the concept of functional decomposition, aka microservices, resonated with me. Right. Uh, and then I started talking about it in the context of the new Cloud Foundry. And it seemed to, it just resonated with people, actually. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, which then caused me to talk about it more. <laughs> Good. It was great. And then it, it was you... this <clears throat> spiral. Well, so you wrote a book, one of my, one of my all time favorite books, uh, which is the, uh, microservices patterns book. Um, a lot of which you document, um, uh, like our friend Gregor on your website, right, Gregor, he, he's got a book about patterns, but you can find 
a lot of that just for free on the website. But uh, no, you, no, 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 no. You have to buy the book. Sure, yeah, no, the book yeah. is better. Better, um, yeah. Really, you yeah. should hire me for training or consulting because <laughs> it, that that is a hundred x better than any. Oh, that is it's true. Website, yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> you. So that so the book the book is I I, I really didn't I didn't know. Uh, what to expect, you know, I, I, when I started to read the book, I thought, well, you know, like it's too new, but you, you did a great job. That book is thick and it, and it, it took, uh, it feels like it took you a fair, fairly good chunk of time to write it because it just, I, I can, I, I can only imagine why the field was changing so much, you know, there's always this new stuff yeah. and you're always cutting edge there. Um, uh -oh. where the book is in my office, oh. <laughs> my book, I, I've written a book or two, and they're definitely not anywhere near where I work because, uh, yeah. I, do you? Well, first of all, do you do you go back and read your own stuff? I, it, if only for reference, I, I, I suppose I might do that once or twice. But <sighs> you know, some yeah, sometimes, and then I, I'm surprised because I learn things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that, like you can only get so much in your head, right? It gets right. paid. Out and it's like, oh, I talked about this. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It that's like when I find my own answer on Stack Overflow. I, I Google something. I'm like, how do I solve this? I'm like, oh, I solved this like five years ago. Never mind. Just use that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, okay. Fascinating. I mean, you you write a book at a, or you write anything at a particular point in time, and then the contents of your brain somehow evolve away from that, right? Or it gets paged, in a sense, it gets paged out. Right. I, so um, for me, the, uh, it, I always thought I would just accumulate more, but it turns out, yeah, like you said, you've only got so much working RAM um, and it just, it has to change, you know, the, the things you keep there will change with the with the tide and these days i think people are are there's certainly I, I think microservices is a prevailing architecture for good reason i think it makes a lot of sense and it's it's not just about the um uh code right as this whole hopefully this discussion has illuminated that there's so much more to microservices than just the lines of code you write i'm hoping that will be spring obviously but but i oh, even yeah. i would never say it has to be about it. there's just so much more it's not just spring boot oh that hurts to say it though i don't like saying that no you know it's funny right like on the one hand when i'm wearing my pure microservices hat right uh, i'm you know i'm trying to talk about concepts in an architecturally uh, in a language sort of neutral fashion right because yeah. the architecture just applies to well, basically every language yeah um but you know I, it's, you know, I think I, I first started using Spring back in 2004. Yeah. Right. I, I, when I learned about, you know, learning about Spring at the server side Java symposium and talking, so I think from Rod Johnson, right. Yeah. Blew my mind, actually, along with like Hibernate from Gavin Newsom, um, not Gavin Newsom, not Newsom. Gavin, <laughs> the other Gavin. Um, <laughs> Gavin's our governor here in California, the fair state of California. Yeah, incomparable. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, that, and because at the time I was using EJB, right? <sighs> Which, if you don't know what that is, that is a good thing. Yeah, if you're, you, if you ever use it, you know what I'm talking about, right? Well, and it just blew one, my. There were one that over one that one and two. Yeah. Three. Oh, I guess, uh, better. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there's there's newer stuff. I, I honestly, but I I just learned learned about the Spring Conference or Spring from that event. Went back yeah. home to my team and said, "Okay, chaps, people, we're doing okay. we're migrating from EJBs to to Spring and Hibernate." Yeah. Um, and really, how yeah, just sort of haven't looked back, and it's just remarkable how Spring has evolved while, while in a way remaining like the core concepts is still sort of unchanged in a sense but it's evolved and it's still um relevant right yeah, well, never, yeah I, and, and i think it's because it has it serves the zeitgeist uh, and so when microservices and cloud native architecture started becoming more in vogue it was sort of a natural thing for spring to accommodate those use cases and uh, you know it just seems to but uh and i think success is not just a matter of uh what you've got in class path it's about how you wield spring in, in, you know to build a, to to build a kind of architecture that makes sense in in today's world so obviously you could carry on building microservices monoliths i mean using the old spring from 2004 today but again, it's you're missing out. There's a lot of opportunities there that'll make you feel successful, um, and and I think today, 2023, or already in August, we've got four months left in this turkey. Um, I think the last four months are going to be the most exciting yet for Java developers, perhaps uh, ever. We've got Project Loom. What are your thoughts on that? As a Java champion. It is awesome. No, <laughs> yeah. no, you know, I. It's very funny that this whole kind of well, the the sort of the evolution of threads on the JVM, right? It's almost right. like full circle because I think in the beginning Java threads weren't were actually lighter weight, and then they went yeah. to native threads, and now they sort of moved away back and. To be honest, I'm very excited about it because, yeah. uh, you know, that I don't want. It's funny because you wrote a book on reactive stuff, and you've done talks on it, and I've yes done yeah. talks about how great it was, yeah. but in reality, just sort of thread-based programming is really simple, <laughs> right? And reactive stuff is just kind of. Oh, it's like, it you know, you're moving out of outside of the language into frameworks that are just more complex. Sure. Right? I would argue that thread-based programming is very simple, but the results are broken, which is the problem, right? They're deceptively simple, but incorrect. Like you can hurt yourself easily. Oh, yeah. Um, well, it's, I guess, well, no, maybe what it is, it's, it's like... Well, I need to do things concurrently. So you are right. in a, a the, you're you're sort of in a problem space that has inherent complexities, right? Yeah. Right. But um, 
But in a way, having multiple threads, say, I think yeah. is, is a simpler model than reactive, right? Uh, no, I agree. I just think it's a simpler model to get the wrong result. It, yeah. <laughs> to get the right result is much more complicated with threads uh, than it is with reactive. Is, I guess I'm trying to um, say. I don't you know. know. I mean, I, so I like just being able to go back to the basics of having yeah. a language where, you know, you, you can do things sequentially in a normal way, right? A, yeah. a colon, B colon. Yes, please. <laughs> As uh, opposed to mapping and flat mapping and blah, blah, yeah. blah, right? And it, I mean, I was thinking about this earlier. I feel like, you know, on the one hand, I'm sort of a fan of sort of more functional type stuff. But then I feel like, you know, if you... You try and solve a problem with monads, you kind of now have two problems. <laughs> Regular expressions. Well, well, yeah. Um, yeah. So, what so, I know about this is that they avoided the striped function problem, um, the async await or suspends of the world, you know, the in, in, in Loom sidesteps all of that right so you don't have to yeah well yeah some of those languages yeah well, they say just like why why it's like there's a disconnect i mean once again it, there's almost like this weird disconnect between the code that you the the language and the code that you need to write right because yeah. once again a a colon b colon c colon is way simpler than sort of any yeah. sort of functional thing you mean semicolon, but I, I understand. Semicolon, yes. Yeah. Um, okay. This is a great comment there, Chris old, Chris old friend. Eh? Oh. Can you talk about the service chassis pattern first, and then let's let's see what he says. Oh yeah. Oh, there's a well, there's a couple of related patterns, which um, I guess since my book I came out. Um, actually, maybe the there was so there's two patterns, right? Like one of them is service template. So it's like, how do you quickly get started with a new service? Um, yeah. And well, one option is to go to start.spring.io, which I know is Josh's second favorite place. Absolutely. Right. right. I have heard you say that so many times. <laughs> but, um, there's an alternative, as good as start.spring.io is, Josh's second favorite place Absolutely. on the web, right. is the concept of a service template, right? So that mm -hmm. is a, like, it's basically a GitHub repo, or, or uh, that's one way of packaging it. You can just copy it, and you have a skeleton service that's got, you know, that's just sort of ready to build upon. They even right. call them. They even have GitHub templates now, which are you can't you, you, you when you when you we, when you deploy them, they actually just clone themselves and they, they fork themselves basically. Oh yeah, I mean there's sort of some tech. I mean the tech there's technology and stuff right around that, but it's basically it's like here's a skeleton application or service that you can just clone. Yeah. De delete the sample business logic out of and add in your own. And it's and it's taking care of all of the plumbing. It's probably you know it's configured the right set of dependencies. 
Um, um, it's it's got the right Gradle build plugins, and it's also got the right say um, deployment pipeline configuration, right? Like a .github what a GitHub Actions workflow setup or um, Circle CI workflow setup, right? So you can just hit the ground running. So that that's like to me that's a must have, right? Yeah. But then the problem with that is that you get a whole it's basically copy and paste programming. Um, and so um, things can kind of drift, right? And then if you need to make changes, you need to make changes in all of the copies of, of the template. Yeah. So the next pattern that solves that is microservice chassis pattern. So that contains all of the common stuff, um, which can be like, Re reusable chunks of Java configuration. It can also be Gradle plugins. It could also be some templates, sort of actually like even predefined GitHub Actions or Circle CI orbs. And so all of that common stuff is moved out of the template into that. And the template is built on the chassis. Yeah. And your app, then your service is a, a clone from, from the template. And then hopefully, if things change, you just need to upgrade your service to use a newer version of the chassis, fingers crossed, and you automatically get all of the good stuff. Wait, so the chassis brings code snippets and all that? Well, then, yeah, maybe there's some, like, for instance. Like, how do you version a bunch of assorted files is that just a well, let's just say that like, you have a rule in your company that all um all rest apis need to be secured with with um jwt right, right? some i mean that's an example right so somewhere there's there's so in your service you need some an act configuration class that sets yeah. that up right so you could have that in the sh in the chassis so you just write it once, and you add import or you um, auto configuration config. So it's like it's the custom stuff um, that's relevant to your, well, I guess you could say organization and your application. Is this? Um, am I mistaken in saying that it's this is a pattern well served by Spring Boot's auto configuration? mechanism yeah yeah i, I mean what i mean it is firstly it's obviously a very generic concept but yeah. once again spring boot has some awesome stuff um like so auto yeah, like auto config and so on that okay. just um help yeah. yeah that's cool i i but um the that's for run. That's for things you can package up in a library or something. But would the service chassis include things like um, a Terraform or my GitHub Action or whatever? Like, how would you version well, number that? Actually, uh, yeah. So, so let's say the service template will have <laughs> GitHub Actions workflow in there, mm -hmm. right? That you know does the uh, the usual steps, right? 
um, up to and including, say, publishing a Docker image to a repo and then publishing a new version of the Helm chart that, that references said Docker image, right? Um, the, the chassis could also, in, I think the scope of the chassis can include, it can include Gradle plugins that, that for, for helping with the build, but then arguably the chassis could also, in, also part of the chassis or things could also be your own custom GitHub actions. Right. Circles, okay. CI orbs, right? So they're obviously not in the library itself, but they're, floating around wherever they need to float so that the the pipeline that's in, that's in the chassis sorry in the service template references them in, in whatever see. way it makes sense so it's not there's not one big version for the entire code base but it's simple enough to flip to increment a number somewhere in the github uh, action definition for the plugins or in gradle yeah 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 okay yeah. so you're those are static but you don't but the thing you're upgrading it's not like not a lot of code uh, becoming stale in your project proper. You just pointed to the new version of an artifact floating around, like you say, somewhere. That's a really yeah. cool pattern. Really cool. So, yeah, um, I mean, I think like maybe when I wrote my book, I might have made, I can't actually, once, I can't remember what I wrote. <laughs> um, but at one point, I know that I thought, oh, we just have Spring Boot, Spring Cloud, and they basically are the chassis. Um, but then somewhere along the line, I realized, no, those are, those are the building blocks for the chassis. And then you, you have stuff that wires them together in the right way. Plus, plus all these sort of like Gradle plugins and possibly, um, deployment pipeline plugins as well. Um, and then collectively that, that forms like the the chassis. I see. Okay. So it's all the extensions that your organization puts forth in a reusable way to augment a stock standard start that spring .io project yeah yeah okay cool. Cool, cool 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 which is josh's second best it, 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 it's on the internet that's true um so are you on the internet and uh you know do you want to be found and if so where can people find you have you set up the Threads account yet? Uh, what's that? Are you on Blue Sky? What about Mastodon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, if you go to, actually, if you like on Twitter, right? Um, mm -hmm. That links to an About Me page, and then that About page has links to all of these, um, yeah, the newfangled social media things. Yeah. Oh, we have a great question here. If you if you feel like I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna put this here and we'll just let that we'll just let that simmer, let it stew, yeah. let people take a note of that. Uh, and in the meantime, while while people are jotting that uh, that Twitter account down, you should be following him. I certainly do. Um, we have a great question. What are your thoughts on deploying an app, a set of microservices, uh, into multi clouds? or in a multi-climate environment, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible last question. No, it's, it's, it's a really interesting one. Like, I, 
I mean, I feel like, you know, these clouds, public clouds, Amazon, Azure, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of technical depth to them. Yeah. And I, it, I think it's challenging to be a multi-cloud, cloud-native person, right? Yeah. Or cloud-native, because there's just, there's so much to learn. Um, right. Which always seems to begin with having your own access key in secret on it, on AWS. Right. <laughs> um, so there's that. And yeah, so I feel like people need to go all in on one or individuals for sure need to go all in on one cloud. And for the most part, I feel like organizations should just go all in on, on, on the said cloud as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm sort of, and then I, that's, and then at the same time, I, I'm kind of skeptical about a lot of this multi-cloud stuff. I feel like that has sort of been promoted by vendors who are desperately trying to sell you multi-cloud solutions, even though you don't necessarily need them. Um, mm. No offense to anyone. <laughs> but yeah, but then on the other hand, there could be use cases for multi-cloud, like, oh, right now Google has some feature that's better than AWS, right? And so there is genuine value in having stuff running some of it on AWS and some of it here, right? Though, of course, there's that whole data gravity concept about the cost of communication between clouds. and Right. Um, that's David Corey's old thing. Um, yeah, which I think is, a, I mean, it's just re reflecting the, the laws of physics, right? Yeah. And it's such a great, data gravity is such a great concept. Really is. Um, you just, um, so I think that last point, the it's not that you're, redundantly deploying everything to every cloud is that you're deploying, you're all in for certain workloads on more than more than one cloud, right? So I- Yeah, but there's a, there's a cost, I mean, there's a cost to that, right? You yeah. need to have people who are experts in more than one cloud and having people who are experts in just one, I think is, is tough enough. So you, you yeah. should be very cautious. Sure. Um, about it. Um, yeah, and actually Gregor Holpe, I think he's written, like he's got a cloud strategy book, right? Which yeah. talks about this this issue in a, in, in a lot of detail. Wait, I gotta get him on the show. He's a character. I, I have, uh, yeah, we we could tell stories. He's great. Oh, I, he, he's a great guy. He is so smart. Yeah. So smart. Really, yeah. Uh, like you, by the way. Uh, so thank you for hanging out today. I know that I have been harassing you for nigh on like four years to get you on the show. And um, it, it's just been really... Uh, Wait, we, we did one a few months ago. You what? We did one a few months ago, didn't we? Did we? Yeah. Oh. Well, no, but this, this has been a pleasure. It was such an un unexpected activity this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for me. I was going to, I've been fighting uh, jet lag. And so this has been really actually great. Otherwise, I would have just crawled up in bed. And I know. That's the thing. You, the only reason you interviewed me is you wanted someone to keep you awake, right? Yeah. Well, and to, and to make my brain feel happy to be awake. You know, <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just going to bed. Thank you. So yeah. much. Everybody, everybody here is uh, grateful. Obviously, this is um, late in the afternoon. A lot of times, I do these streams in the morning, 
but yeah, like, again, everything's all off kilter, off balance. Yeah. And, uh, I really appreciate it. No, this, is, this is a pleasure. Thank, thank you for, for pinging me a couple well, two hours ago or whenever it was. <laughs> um, I appreciate it. Uh, did the, the, when's the next, I mean, I don't know, do you, you're still running the job user group there. Uh, um, no, it's sort of, I've let it lapse, unfortunately. Um, I mean, I encourage everyone to go check out the San Francisco Java users group because they're, yeah. they're super active. It has become more and more valuable. Uh, you know, obviously the, the one, so you used to run, you want to, you don't have to mention it if you don't want to, but anyway, it's not far from here, but it is, well, it's it a Java users group. I mean, to yeah. reality, I, I probably just, someone needs to nudge me into actually doing something. If you decide to throw an event, I'd love to come speak at some point. It's all I guess I was trying to say. Yeah. Um, there's uh, great food over. It's not that far. It's like 15 minutes drive from here to, to your doorstep or whatever. Yeah. It's, just, it's just very, very, um, just very, I'm, now that people are starting to do in-person events and stuff, uh, I think Java, Java user groups, you know, I, I need to put more, I need to invest more into them. Yeah. Okay, my friend. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks, everyone. A Beautiful Podcast is produced by me, Josh Long. I do these podcasts because I believe that everything we do in software is for and made better by people. I want to hear from you. I'm Josh at joshlong.com by email or at S-T-A-R-B-U-X-M-A-N on Twitter, where, of course, my direct messages are wide open. Do you have guest ideas, topic suggestions, feedback? Don't hesitate to reach out. If you like the show, then please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review, uh, as it really helps the show. I sampled music from Steve Combs's Them from Morning and Springtime and Steve Combs's Small Victory, both of which are licensed under a Creative Commons license. I'm trying to hire production assistants to make the production of this podcast easier. I want to make sure that we can add things like show notes and transcripts and, and just generally do more. If you would like to advertise on the show, then please reach out to me. Uh, and if you can't uh, or don't want to advertise but would like to otherwise support the show, then please consider supporting me at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Josh Long for as low as $4 a month. Thanks again. No harm came to any seasons in the making of this podcast.